the currency with Nick Bullman. Brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services. Protecting your profits for 30 years. Good evening and welcome to The Currency with me, Nick Bullman. Over the next hour, we'll review the current international economic, business and geopolitical issues that impact markets at home and abroad. If you want to contact the show, you can do so by emailing thecurrency at newstalk.ie or tweet us at thecurrencynt. Now, coming up, the juggling act. Leading German economist Michael Hooter on where the chips are likely to fall as Europe juggles sanctions, sovereign debt and bank reform. The pension panel. This week, our panel considers pension liberalisation, gender inequality and sovereign investment. And Aidan Donnelly, senior equity strategist at Davy Private Clients, reviews the week in international markets, including Russian sanctions and Fed interest rates. But before all of that, let's turn to one of the main headline makers of the week. When Chancellor of the Exchequer George Osborne announced a dramatic liberalisation to Britain's pension schemes, essentially cancelling most pension regulations and offering retirees freedom to access their entire pension pots. While the property and luxury industries are revelling at this news, the UK's £14 billion annuity business could be on its knees. Here to explain the UK's pension shake-up and its consequences is Reuters correspondent based in London, Chris Fellacott. Hi, Chris. Um, Chris, can you, can you briefly outline the uh, details surrounding the pension reforms and who might be benefiting from the changes? Well, basically, we're moving from a system where retirees were cajoled into buying an annuity on pain of pretty punitive taxation if they didn't, to a system where more responsibility on providing for oneself is put in the hands of the individual. So you can essentially take the whole lot in a lump sum if you want. Um, 25% of that will be tax-free. The other three-quarters will be taxed if you take it in one go at your highest rate of income tax um so in theory only 20 percent for a lot of people um and basically it also removes any limit on how much you can take as a as an income year by year uh through a system known as income drawdown which is where you keep the pension pot invested in the stock market and take some of it uh, every year as an income and uh previously if you did that you know, that was capped. Uh, so the old system was essentially trying to force uh, responsible behavior on people, um, whereas the new system basically allows you to take responsibility for your own thrift and uh, provision during your retirement. So many advisors are already uh, recommending that savers dump annuities in favor of, of drawdown schemes. Um, is this really the, the, the end for the annuity business? And, and what are the annuity companies going to be doing? Well, I don't think it's the absolute end for the annuity business because the trouble with annuities is that they provide pretty poor value now. And the reason they provide poor value now is that since the financial crisis, interest rates um, in the UK have been extremely low, historically low. So we're at a time in history where all these baby boomers who are born after the war are starting to retire. So if you're retiring now, you get a, you know, you'll get an annuity rate of about 5%. At some point, presumably, interest rates will go up and annuities will become a better deal. Um, so I don't think annuities will disappear, and they will certainly continue to play a role. But I think it's reasonably clear that um, they will, you know, the, the, the size of the market, because everybody isn't being cajoled into buying one, will, will shrink. So the annuity providers, the ins- these insurance companies, 
we'll see a, a substantial chunk of their of their market um, dis- disappear, or at least be substantially reduced, at least for the time being. And why did the UK government choose to to make this decision to liberalise now? It can't be just altruistic. Um, what, what sort of reforms were they looking to make? A lot of it's to do with incentivising savings, because the government is essentially trying to step back from being the um, pensions provider of last resort, I suppose, um, and to reduce the burden on the, on, the, on the welfare system, on the state, and to encourage people to save. And if the annuity rate that you get is not very good, um, it's not going to do very much for incentivising people to put more money away, because they're going to think, well... I'll save all this money and then I'll get a poor rate at the end of it. Um, so the idea is that people should take, take a more proactive role and uh, take more responsibility for themselves and uh, have, have more options available to them that, you know, that, they can, that, they, that might leave them better off. And that could be through other types of investments or it could be you know, if you're lucky enough to have enough to put into property, then it, you could go down that route. Um, or you could put it into into starting your own business. I mean, the, the point is that you can shop. You can you have a greater choice now to do what you want with your with your own money. Chris Fellicott, Reuters London correspondent. Thanks very much for joining us on the show. Now, here with me in the studio is our panel: Chief Investment Officer at IFG Corporate Pensions, Samantha McConnell, and CEO of the Irish Association of Pension Funds, Jerry Moriarty. You're both welcome. We'll be discussing gender inequality in Irish pension schemes and details of a 6.8 billion sovereign investment fund. But first, following on from the UK's pension liberalisation, is this a strategy that Ireland should consider? Well, I think um, we have an element of it already in that um, people retiring from the fund contribution plans do have the ability to transfer their benefits to a drawdown plan. So we have that bit, uh, which is the bit that's coming in pretty much immediately in the UK. Um, what we don't have is the option to give people the ability to take all their um, all their savings as cash, which is what the consultation process is about and what's due to come in next year. Um, I think, you know, there are different elements to this. It probably makes the whole concept of saving for retirement more attractive to people because they've got more options. They can visualise what they're going to get at retirement. But I think the big concern that's been flagged up, and I was in the UK Thursday and Friday, and the thing that's worrying everybody is whether people will have the discipline to actually take the pot of money they get at retirement age and make that last through the rest of their life which could be 20, 25 years. There's quite a bit of scepticism as well that this is a manoeuvre just to generate more revenue for the uh, for Her Majesty's government as opposed to, uh, to uh, really helping uh, pensioners. Um, do you think that's, that's the case or, or, or do you think this was a genuine effort to, to liberalise pensions? I, I, certainly my own view is, uh, I, I'd agree with Jerry. I think the first part is very welcome. Uh, we've had it here for the last uh, three years almost now uh, in, in relation to DC schemes. I think the issue here is that there's no minimum level of income that you need to have. And, and we have this concept of drop, drop dead risk, uh, which is uh, the risk that the money uh, falls uh, out of, of uh, the bottom of the barrel before, before you do. And I think that's a huge risk. Uh, I think if, if people have a, a huge pot of money, there is uh, a tendency to want to blow it. Uh, well, one of the main drivers, though, for this was that annuities just weren't generating the kinds of returns for, for pensioners that they should be. Uh, is that the case in Ireland or is that a, unique to the UK? No, 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 absolutely not. I think it's, it's, it's the same here um, as it is 
is in the UK. Uh, and in fact, the rates are, are even slightly lower on, on long-dated government bonds uh, in the Eurozone at, at, at present. I think the big issue here, though, is that most people won't buy an annuity out of a DC scheme here in the, in the Irish market. Uh, you, we've only had a small minority of individuals retiring out of DC schemes. It's a relatively new phenomenon. What you do see is that most of those individuals don't even have enough to buy an annuity. They are able to take all of their money in tax-free cash. And that's a big issue. Um, and, and the reality of the, 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 the situation here is that most people are not saving enough uh, to be able to uh, go into what's known as a, a, an approved retirement fund, which is the ability to set up a fund that you can use post-retirement and then you draw down or you take income out of it. Well, that's interesting because in Australia you have the um, Australian pension regulator, APRA, who uh, through the superannuation schemes there through my super actually uh, uh, on a legal basis actually force uh, specific amounts of savings from from uh, investors for their retirement is that something you could ever foresee in the irish context i think um yeah i mean the australian context is quite interesting because in australia most people take their money as cash that's the option they have um but in australia you could take all your savings as cash from age 60 um, and you can then become entitled to a means-tested state pension from age 65, which gives a lot of incentive for people you know, who do want to use the cash and do want to splurge it and spend it over that five-year period because they know they've got something to fall back on from the state anyway. So I think you get into you know, issues like moral hazards. Um, I think the point you were making earlier about the you know, annuities yielding low returns is interesting because you know, one of the things is annuities yield probably around 4%, something like that. Um, but if you want to do better than annuity in a drawdown product, that means you're looking for return that's going to be higher than that, which means taking quite significant and risk. And while there are a lot of problems with annuity products in the UK, there are probably even more product problems with uh, drawdown products because they can be very expensive. And fees are often typically around 2% per annum. So if you add that on to 4%, now you're looking for an excess of 6%. And, you know, our pensioners really people who want to be taking that type of risk. And I think that's, that's a major concern as well in terms of, you know, there are two concerns. One, people spend it all. And the other is people might just stick it in a bank account where they're getting no return anyway and are afraid to spend it because pensioners do tend to be quite cautious with their money. And, and certainly the current uh, legislation um, forces you to draw down 5% of your income uh, minimum uh, per annum. Now, it doesn't take a long while for that income to, 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 to leak out of the system. Certainly, we'd always recommend putting a, a, a minimum amount of your income into a secure product, as we call it, the nursing home uh, product. Uh, it's to make sure that you have a minimum amount of income to meet your, your needs. And then you do with what, what you want based on your own assessment of risk and the level of return that you require. Cash pots that have been taken out in the Australian context, uh, the, the vast majority have actually gone to pay off things like mortgages. Could that be a possible solution to the, the, the mortgage issues that exist here in Ireland? Uh, there was some analysis done that actually shows that the mortgage problems here in Ireland are actually in the, the uh, 35 to 45 year old bracket rather than the 45 up bracket. And if you look at the average size of a pension pot from, of a 35 to 45 year old, it's actually quite small. Therefore, I, uh, short term, I don't think it's going to help uh, with, with the, the, the mortgage uh, crisis here. I think uh, the government made some attempt to address some of that issue with allowing people limited access to their um, additional voluntary contributions. So currently you can take uh, up to 30% of your AVCs as a one-off um, takeaway from, from your pension fund. But even based on our own experience, uh, the take-up of that option has been uh, relatively limited. Okay, Samantha, I'll have to stop you there just for the moment as we take a break. But coming up, we'll move on to gender pension inequality. So stay tuned. The Currency with Nick Bullman. 
Brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services. Protecting your profits for 30 years. Welcome back to The Currency with me, Nick Bullman, and our panel, which includes Chief Investment Officer at IFG Corporate Pension, Samantha McConnell, and CEO of the Irish Association of Pension Funds, Jerry Moriarty. Now, just before the break, we were talking about the change in pensions legislation in the UK, but now let's move on to gender pension inequality. The Central Statistics Office have published research which shows that women in the Republic receive less than half as much from occupational pensions as men while their income from private pensions is only 60% compared to that of men. Now, IFG have concluded that generally working mothers who take just five years off to look after their family could lose up to €70,000 from their pension pot. Samantha, as Chief Investment Officer at IFG, you calculated serious financial risk for women who decide to take career breaks or work part-time in order to have a family. What were your findings and why does this inequality exist? Well, I think we need to go back to basics, Nick, and, and, and really where you have to start is how many women actually have a pension in the first place. So while uh, roughly about five in ten of the overall workforce have a pension, when you look at the statistics for women, uh, that drops down to two uh, in ten. And therefore, you very few women actually saving for a pension in the first place. Uh, in relation to the CSO uh, statistics, what's interesting on that is that women who are affected by the gender bar here in the 1970s are the ones who are now in a position to retire and therefore you will see that drop uh, in pension income as a result of that. Uh, the problem is that we don't see those figures uh, dramatically changing uh, any time in the near future and, and there's effectively two key reasons why, why we think that is the case. Uh, the first one is uh, women's need currently uh, to take career breaks around you know, raising a family and we worked it out based on a, the average industrial rate of €45,000 assuming that somebody was in a position to be prudent enough to save as much as they could. If if they started saving at the age of 35, um, they would uh, amass a fund of around about 356,000 at the time they got to retirement. And we assume they would retire at 68, uh, given that that's where we will all be uh, in a few years' time. Now, if we assume that uh, for, for family reasons they didn't start saving at 35, but instead uh, postponed that until the age of 40, uh, the fund would fall to 286,000 euros, drop of over 20% uh, in the value of the fund. And that's a huge drop purely from, for taking that, that, that five-year break. So is there a solution? I mean, could, could the government have pension credits or, or what, what, sort of, what sort of solution yeah. can, can be envisaged? I, I, I think to envisage any solution where the government puts any more money into pensions <laughs> is, is, is ludicrous, uh, given that they can't afford the pensions that they're currently uh, paying both to the, the uh, civil servants nor indeed the state pensions. So I, I think we can, we can erase that from the, the memory banks at the moment. I think really, in, 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 in reality, there's really only two things you can do is one, um, and having two kids myself, I know I have no money, um, but I had a lot more money before they came along. So I think you ultimately, if you're looking to plan a family, you do need to actually start putting money away before they even arrive on the scene because you'll, it, you'll never find it uh, easier than you, than you do then. And then really post uh, getting back into the workforce, it's really looking to increase uh, even marginally the rate that you're putting in because ultimately it's all about cumulatively how much you can put in over time uh, so you're not looking to put in big lump sums but every month if you can put in a little bit extra it makes a huge difference uh, when you get to we, the end. We, we had uh, Dame Alison Carnworth on from the UK some two or three weeks ago and she was talking about women in the workforce and uh, the fact that, that corporations have to do more to to uh, change. Uh, Jerry, from the IAPF's perspective is there is there something that pension funds can actually be doing to, uh, to try 
try and level the playing field a bit. I, I think it's hard because it, it's probably more a societal issue than just an issue for pension funds because, you know, I mean, you're starting off from the fact that women earn less on average as well, which is a, another problem which only just makes it worse. And I think there has to be some recognition that, you know, women who take breaks from the workforce are actually providing quite a lot of economic value and that should be reflected. And the government's plan was to provide credits in the state system and apparently that was ruled out as was too expensive. And I think there's some things that you're not really looking whether it's too expensive or not, but it's a, is it the right thing to do or not? Um, I think companies, if they can do something to help out, and um, I'm, I'm, it's very hard to find a simple solution to it. Um, but I, I do think that we have to provide more flexibility and deal with the issue. It is a really important issue. And so who's going to be left with the, the can at the end of the day? Because we, I think there's going to be something like 536,000 uh, uh, women uh, reaching the age of 65 or over in the next 30 years. Uh, I mean, is this just a, a, a problem that's going to eventually have to be picked up by government? I think so at some point. And, and ultimately, if you have some element of compulsion coming into to the pension provision, that will address a lot of the issues that we're talking about here, i.e. only two in ten women having a pension in the first place. So if, if you're making sure that everybody in the workplace... Uh, is covered by some sort of compulsory pensions that will at least address some of that issue. I think the big issue is for uh, women who have um, for financial reasons or lifestyle reasons have decided that they're working from the home um, and, and they're in a, a, a slightly uh, less secure position because they're either fully dependent on their partner's uh, pension uh, which works great if, you, if you're still together um, but doesn't work so well if, if, if something happens along the way and what we'd certainly be urging people is if you get yourself into that situation is to take independent advice because most women are focused on protecting the family home and protecting short-term income and they don't really look at long-term income i.e. what happens once you get to the point uh, of, of retirement and, and that's hugely hugely important um, and ultimately it's, it's how do you address um, that black hole which is, you know, what happens because they're not going to get a state pension uh, at the point of retirement because they don't have any stamps. So how do you give them something uh, to make them financially independent at the, uh, at the point of retirement? And it's a very difficult issue to try and crack. No, very complex. And, um, you know, for, for, for women who find themselves in the situation, is there somewhere they can go for, for advice? Well, I think that, that there's two uh, key uh, areas where we can, we can sort of flag for, for free advice. Well, one is um, FLAC, which is the free legal aid. Um, and the second one is uh, Women in Pensions, which is a, an industry grouping of, of women who work in pensions, have put together a uh, uh, hundred hours of, of free uh, financial advice, um, uh, which we're giving and offering to, to women in their situation. And again, if you go online and find on uh, Women in Pensions, you'll get all the details around that. That's excellent. That's very helpful. Um, so moving on to... Um a new sovereign wealth fund. At the beginning of this month, the NTMA outlined details of the new Ireland Strategic Investment Fund, which will replace the National Pensions Reserve Fund and focus on sovereign investment. Now, the Eructus passes the legislation shortly. It will establish the ISIF. Uh, domestic investments to the tune of about $6.8 billion will be allocated to areas such as road and water infrastructure, startup funds for new business and developing the Irish tech industry. Now, Jerry, um, money currently invested in profitable stocks and bonds abroad will have to be sold uh, in order to fund this new state uh, vehicle. Um, is it a wise move by the government and uh, what sort of impact do you think it might have? 
Well, I think the first thing I'd like to say about it is it's not really a new fund. This is what was set up as a National Pensions Reserve Fund to start to address the very significant rises in the cost of providing pensions in Ireland to public servants and the state pension. Um, it was one of the first National Pension Reserve Funds in the world and was quite a good idea in terms of starting to pre-fund for the uh, liabilities that are going to hit us in quite a significant way in the next 30, 40 years. So it, it's from a pensions point of view, it's quite disappointing that that has literally been thrown out now um, and it's been used for another purpose, although I can obviously see the benefits for the country and the need to get some um, sort of kickstart to the economy. Um, in terms of, I think the um, National Pens- Pensions Reserve Fund have been sort of tactically and strategically selling down their um, the assets they did hold abroad over the last few months, so you know they knew this was coming. Um, whether it's going to be a good move or not, I mean, at the end of the day, results will only show whether it is or not, um, and that's obviously going to take some time. I can certainly understand the idea that if you if you start spending money on infrastructure, you can you can start to get some benefit to the economy. But is it large enough? It's, it strikes me as being too small f- to really give that kind of boost to the economy. Yeah, and if you look at it in the context of, of other amounts of money that are, go- are, are going in or are planned to go in in terms of government capex expenditure, it, it, it's it's fairly small and fairly minimal in that context. But going back to Jerry's point in terms of you know it's it's the end of the end at the NPRF or the National Pension Reserve Fund. We started with nineteen point nine million billion. I beg your pardon. Thirteen point one billion went into our banks. Uh, so there was a raid on the NPRF to, to to bail out the banks. We're now bailing out the current economy to the tune of six point eight billion. Now pensions funds are already funding into the economy because of the pensions levy. Um, and up until the end of this year, pension funds will have already contributed two point two billion over the last four years. So yet again, pension funds are seeing as this easy pot of money for the government to lump into current expenditure to try and kickstart the economy. Um, and ultimately, I, I would have my doubts as to whether ultimately you'd actually see any return. Now, they, they do point to the fact that they're looking for uh, private equity to come in alongside this money uh, as, as a you know, public-private partnership almost type arrangement. And there will be returns coming out from this. Um, but ultimately... You've now got a situation where both the public sector pensions and the state pensions are now completely unfunded. So you're saying it could leave a massive hole in the future? Oh, we already have a massive hole. Um, the, 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 the size of the public sector uh, pension deficit, um, based on the last figures that were published, which was back in 2011, was in or around 111 uh, million. Billion. Uh, billion. Um, I get my millions and billions mixed up all the time, but 111 billion, which is massive in the context of it. It's almost one time our, our GDP. And if you look at our, our uh, the state pension, now currently that's paid for by PRSI. And between uh, what uh, an individual puts in and what the uh, company put in, you're putting in around about 14.75%. If you wanted to fully fund for the pensions that are currently in payment, not even future pensions, that PRSI rate would have to double. So we're in a situation where, you know, the current funds that they have committed uh, to pensioners are becoming an increasing drain uh, on public uh, resources. So do you, do you feel that the NTMA would have been better off uh, raising more money through the, the, the public markets and using that to fund uh, these kinds of activities? Or uh, do you feel they had nowhere else to go 
other than the, the national pensions? I think they probably had nowhere else to go and in fairness to the NTMA this is a political direction it's not a strategic decision by the NTMA um, you know government decided this was their policy this is what they wanted to use the national pensions reserve fund for and therefore the NTMA are directed to turn it into this strategic investment fund so it, it is a political decision um, I agree completely with Samantha uh, you know pension funds over 2 billion out of 80 billion um, has been paid to the government in a levy that's doing nothing anyway and are certainly doing nothing for pension funds um, and it is a case and you know Ireland isn't unique in this we're seeing this around the world as well where pension funds are looked at as this big asset that's sitting there that governments mm. want to put to work in a way that suits yes, them. Yes but I mean ro- robbing Peter to pay Paul has never been a, 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 a satisfactory economic policy so how is the government not being questioned? Yeah, but I think ultimately it comes back down to uh, pensions are a long-term problem and they need long-term solutions. And I think ultimately uh, any uh, politician is focused on the next election cycle. Um, And it's very difficult to take decisions that are in the long-term good uh, when it's going to hurt you short-term from a political perspective. And that's certainly why I think most people uh, would look for pensions to be taken out of the political arena, uh, for a pensions board to be set up uh, or a pensions body to be set up um, that really drives forward uh, strategic policy on pensions. Because ultimately, no politician is going to force people uh, into uh, unpopular decisions that will impact on their ability to get elected next time around. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Samantha McConnell, Chief Investment Officer at IFG and Jerry Moriarty, CEO of the Irish Association of Pension Funds. Thanks very much for joining me in the studio this evening. Don't forget to get your opinions heard. Contact the show by emailing thecurrency at newstalk.ie or tweet us at thecurrencynt. Coming up, a leading German economist on where Europe's economy can go from here. The Currency with Nick Bullman. Brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services. Protecting your profits for 30 years. Welcome back to The Currency with me, Nick Bullman. The past few months, in fact years, have been extraordinarily turbulent times for Europe's economic landscape. The EU has had to juggle a number of different issues, including sovereign bailouts, banking reforms, threat of deflation, energy dependency, and more recently, the redrawing of certain national boundaries. So, as Europe is transitioning through all of these changes, we take a look at where the Union is now with one of Europe's leading economists and director of the German Economic Institute, IDW, Michael Huter. Michael, there's a lot to discuss, but let's begin with the burning issue in Europe at the moment, which is Crimea, uh, Russia, and of course, the hollow threat of sanctions. Has Putin outsmarted Europe by realizing that sanctions are a two-way street? Um, I don't know what Putin is really thinking about because um, he's a very strange person, but what we have to see that is that uh, the Russian economy is a very weak one because they have a uh, there's no real industrial base. They have a very problematic demographic stance. Uh, they have only uh, the revenues from the exports of oil and gas. So this is a very weak situation overall. Looking on that, sanctions from the European Union should be effective. And in the end, I uh, suppose that we will come back to the diplomatic sphere. And there is not really a burden for the uh, economic forecast this year. I mean, uh, the, the, the main pawn in sort of uh, Putin's armory is the fact that Europe is, is quite dependent on, on Russian natural gas. Yes. Has the situation in, in Crimea exposed a greater risk 
do you think, to the EU um, that, is, that is based on energy dependence? But it's a two-side dependency because uh, Putin needs all these revenues from the gas and natural gas and oil exports. Otherwise, he will not be able to manage his um, public budget. He will not be able to manage the social policy approach. And there is no alternative for a value-added base in the Russian economy uh, up to now. What they need, uh, you look on the import structure of the Russian economy, the machinery and equipment, machinery and equipment um, chemical products. So they are still starting on the way for an own industrial base. So on the one hand, yes, we need uh, the gas from Russia especially in Poland, uh, in Czech, uh, Czech Republic, Slovak Republic, and also in Germany. And, but on the other hand, uh, the Russian economy depends on the revenues from these exports. Now, from the German perspective, obviously following the J Japanese uh, nuclear disaster a number of years ago, mm -hmm. uh, Germany moved away from uh, um, the idea of nuclear energy. Is this... Um, this exposure, this strategic exposure likely to push Germany uh, back to, to reconsidering uh, nuclear energy? No, this is not in the public mood. Um, the public opinion is, is strongly against nuclear power plants. So we will go ahead with our so-called energy change and uh, will force, foster new um, uh, re um, renewable energy production. And we have just now we have 25% from this source. So this is a way we have to go. We'll, we'll also go in the next future and in the next 10 to 15 years to reach a goal of uh, 50 and, and more percent of overall energy production from renewable sources. Uh, so that is not really a new um, situation caused by the uh, Russian-Ukraine situation. Now, move, moving on to um, the, the European economic situation, mm. that there are a lot of moving parts at the moment. Um, is it possible that the economic policy mix is all wrong. I mean, the, the euro is too strong. Uh, the ECB can't act uh, very freely at the moment. Uh, inflation is too low. We may even be on the, on the edge of a deflationary trap. Um, do you think Europe is, is um, to quote a phrase, making, making a mess of the recovery at the moment? Or, or do you think things are, are moving along as expected? I think it's moving along as expected in a public debt crisis is also related to a banking crisis and in such a, such a background of a debt, public debt crisis and banking crisis you need at least 10 years to reach a new balance in the financial system and to on the restructuring of the economies as well. So I think we are in a better shape than 12 months before. We have a better outlook also for the debt crisis countries in the southern part of the Eurozone, Spain, Portugal, um, and also for Greece. So uh, it's, it's still a long way to go, but we are on track. And it's quite clear that the ECB will hold the interest rates low for, the, for a longer period. Maybe in the end of next year, that will be the first step. But up to now, we need this uh, very expensive mood of the monetary policy. And looking on the, uh, on the exchange rate, uh, it, changed, it changed a little bit from the uh, after the, the Fed intervention, what Janet Yellen said, um, that maybe next year the Fed will start in uh, rising the interest rate. So from this side, we will have an, um, a better shape, also for, a better, better situation also for the European exports. So overall, it's a long way to go, but we are on the right track. 
And don't you think, I, I know that recently there was a, uh, a an economic institute in Germany that was calling for um, a much, much more quantitative easing, a more proactive yeah. inflation strategy. Uh, what would your own institute's view of, of that be? I think it's an interesting argument because it's quite... Uh, realistic also to argue in, in on the deflation risk side. In Germany, traditionally, we only focus on the inflation risk side, but it's also just now we have an inflation in rate is below 1%. The inflation target of the ECB is 2% and close to 2%. So there is a deflation risk, yes, but I don't think that we need uh, such an, uh, new programs in, uh, for, the, for the monetary policy um, to in, in, as an easing approach, because if you're looking on the composite leading indicators for the eurozone, you see a correlation between them and the inflation rate, and therefore we will we expect a higher inflation rate in the end of this year and to, uh, for the next year. So it's okay that the ECB will go on with this low level of the interest rate, but there's no need for further easing, quantitative easing. Okay, fine. And um, just... Um just going back to the uh, EPP meeting in Dublin two weeks ago, uh, the German Chancellor, uh, Angela Merkel, was very clear that a level playing field regarding corporate tax rates uh, is inevitable. Now, uh, that's potentially a direct hit on Irish uh, fiscal policy. And there's, there's a feeling in Ireland that, with one hand, Germany may be patting Ireland on the head for their economic recovery, but with the other hand, are preparing to cut Ireland's global investment lifeline. Uh, how do you how do you think Germany uh, reconciles those two different views? Um, first of all, it's true that the German government is in favor of what, is, what, what was reached, what was um, um, uh, reached in the adjustment process in Ireland. On the other hand, it's also true that we have to focus on the imbalances in some special fields of politics in Europe. And tax policy is one of these fields which are of interest. Um, I don't think that the German government will have the power real to um, uh, change the European approach on the um, corporate tax, but that there is a debate ongoing in Germany saying what is a level playing field for enterprises on the competitive side here in Europe, and there must be a more uh, comprehensive um, uh, situation. This, uh, this, I think, is also a debate we will have from, from some other European countries, France, for example. So I think it's an ongoing debate, but it's not really related to the first um, aspect in saying, yes, uh, we we um, in favor of what was reached in the adjustment process in Ireland. It's very impressive. Michael Hooter, Director of the German Economic Institute, IDW, thanks very much for joining us this evening on The Currency. We'll take a quick break now, but coming up, Aidan Donnelly, Senior Equity Strategist at Davy Private Clients. He will review the week in international markets, so please stay tuned. The Currency with Nick Bullman. Brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services. Protecting your profits for 30 years. Welcome back to The Currency with me, Nick Bullman. If you want to listen back to this evening's show or previous shows, they're all up on our website. Uh, you can see them at newstalk.ie forward slash the currency. Now it's time for us to review the week in international markets. Joining me in studio is senior equity strategist at Davy Private Clients, Aidan Donnelly. Probably the most important thing 
uh, to happen last week in international markets was Janet Yellen's briefing on the Federal Open Market Committee's interest rate outlook. Uh, Markets claimed that she'd slipped up which I doubt very much, uh, when she said that QE would end in August and interest rates are likely to rise within six months from then. So is this really a big change, uh, Aidan, at the Fed, or is it uh, more of the same? Well, I think you're right about it it not being a slip-up. I think if there's one thing we've learned from the Fed through Bernanke's last few years and and obviously the handover to Janet Yellen, everything is orchestrated. It may look on the surface to be a a slip-up, but ultimately there's definitely a, a game plan in place. And I, and I think when we come to the, the whole transition from QE tapering over to when the first interest rate rise is going to happen, was always going to be a very, very difficult and potentially um, volatile period for markets. So I think Yellen, as, as the Federal Reserve Chairman, wanted to get ahead of that and wanted to have a playbook in place, let there be no surprises. It's a bit like when uh, Bernanke announced the, uh, his intentions to start tapering. It was well ahead of when he actually wanted to start but he wanted to make sure everything was kept, uh, you know, the the markets were kept informed. Um, Obviously, the Fed can control what's called the short end of the interest rate curve. They they, they can manage that very effectively. But beyond the 10-year and and, and on, it becomes less easy. So um, do you think as a result of uh, uh, Yellen's speech, we're going to see rates rise uh, in terms of bond yields uh, in in the short term? And what sort of impact has that had on the rest of the world? Well, I I definitely think we will see interest rates beginning to tick up. You know, we've seen it last week. We saw the the Fed futures... uh, um, for May 2015 pick up we've seen two year rates rise a little bit but more importantly we've seen three year rates three year treasury rates uh, pick up in the last week so there's definitely the market is beginning to discount rate increases over the next kind of 18 months to two years so that's definitely in play and, and, and it's not necessarily just about the Fed I think there was the natural inclination to be moving out the curve I think you're right that the Fed doesn't have a lot, whole lot of control um, over you know anything outside of 10 years but really in the States that's all that matters because obviously the mortgage rates are, are, are priced off 10 years so that's really what they want to control uh, to protect the housing market and then at the short end they want to be able to to, to use those short end rates to you know help banks out build capital and things like that, but I think an interesting knock on of the the interest rate expectations going up in the u s has actually come in the currency markets. We, we've seen a, a very, very strong euro over the, since kind of the start of this year and even into, from the tail end of last year. And it's, it's interesting if you look at or if you listen to an awful lot of the large European corporates, a lot of them, certainly over the last couple of weeks and they've been reporting, have been taking down guidance for 2014 based on the strength of the euro. So it's, it is a big problem for them. You know, when you look at Europe, the domestic economy is not growing at a, at, at a great clip. So the thing that's kind of been bailing them out has been the export markets. And if you have a strong euro, that's, that's bad news. You know, we had Draghi the week before last begin to try the process of talking down the euro to see if we, if we can get it back into a manageable level. Um, certainly the, the Fed's move uh, last week is helping that because we've definitely seen the, the we immediately saw the dollar euro rate drop down to the 137s. Is that enough for you, for European corporates? I don't think so. They would much prefer it back around around the kind of 133, 134. Um, but I do think every little bit helps. And, and, you know, whether it was an intended or an unintended consequence, I think there'll be an awful lot of uh, European CEOs saying thank you very much. Now, moving to uh, moving to the Ukraine, Putin has... Um 
apparently su- successfully annexed Crimea. Um, uh, Europe appears to have been tied up in knots over the whole thing, uh, realizing that sanctions against Russia could also become sanctions against Europe. Has the outcome been beneficial for markets? Well, I, I think, you know, definitely the, the, if you look at the last few weeks, the two main issues that have been on everybody's lips has been the Ukraine and, and China. And, you know, I think this week, People are looking back at the Ukraine and going, you know, when you look at the market reaction, they kind of go, well, what was all that about? And I, I think this, the sanctions issue is a very good one. I, you know, the, the Americans can kind of play hardball because they don't have the, the um, trade links that, or the dependencies on, on, on Russian gas or anything like that that the Europeans have. I think when it comes to the Europeans, it is a bit of a twin-edged sword, you know, they, they they, they can't back away from it, but it's almost turning into a very, very expensive game of chicken for both sides as to as yeah. to who who is going to flinch. Um, I think the the Europeans want to get their their point across uh, because obviously the the Ukrainian European tie up is is something that that the the authorities in Europe want. But at the same time, you know, uh, Germany realised that there's a huge dependency both on trade, inter- in, inward and ex- uh, outbound uh, trade with Russia. So I, I think they have to tread a very, very thin line. Well, for Germany, the other thing, of course, is that their, their dependency on natural gas has been exposed as a real strategic and geopolitical risk. Do you think Germany's going to have to reconsider its nuclear policy? And is that is that a positive for, for that sector? I, I think it's very interesting. The, if you were to look back at... At, at the uh, at German policy on, on on nuclear, it almost kind of flip flops depending on what the news line is. Like when we had the Fukushima disaster, they immediately said, "Right, we're going to close down all our nuclear plants." And it was it looked like a kind of a knee jerk reaction because they said, "Well, we don't want nuclear." And then they kind of, everybody said, "Well, what are you going to put in its place?" Oh, well, we haven't really kind of thought about that just yet, but we don't want nuclear. Now we suddenly flip around and we find that the you know if there is a long term. Uh, uh, structural uh, reduction in the amount of natural gas going into Germany you know they can't power you know they, they just can't power their, their electricity generation without that natural gas so I, I, again it kind of ties into the point that you know it's, it's a bit like when it comes to the sanctions uh, European sanctions on Russia it's a bit like Turkey's voting for Christmas because they just uh, the Germans certainly can't be too strident because there's too much of a dependence I think ultimately uh, longer term Germany does need to come up with a, a much stronger and, and thought out policy on what their power generation are, their energy requirements are um, and where that leads I, I think you know it, it's hard to say we have seen some pick up in some of the, the share prices and the big European power generators um, the Eons and the RWEs and, and you know it probably the longer this goes on maybe it, it, it plays into the, the share prices a little bit further but again I think it will be a short term phenomenon but the long term issue is still very much there the, the other uh, market focus that you mentioned was, was China. Um, Asian markets, some Asian markets anyway, have uh, officially entered bear market territory last week. Um, China is, I think, now the cheapest equity market in Asia, something like seven times or seven and a half times. Um, they've got excellent uh, return on investment sort of characteristics. Um, is it too early to be 
bottom fishing in in uh, in Asia at the moment? The million dollar question. The million dollar question. Yes, it's for those who are brave. I, I think what's interesting about when you look at the valuation uh, argument, there's a, there was a very very good piece done by I think it was either Barclays or Credit Suisse in their in their their annual outlook that basically um, went through all of the major markets and 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 took the valuation and, and basically resectorized it. So depending on the type of sectors that were in that market, gave a much better feel as to 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 what the PEs were. And and when he's kind of normalize PEs across the, uh, all of the major markets. You find that, that while it is still cheap, it's not as cheap as you, you would a- actually think it was. Certainly, I think when it comes to the Asian markets and China in particular, you know, there, there's always the, the, the risk that people confuse emerging economies with emerging stock markets. They're not necessarily the same thing. We've seen strong growth in the emerging economies. We continue to see, you know, six, seven, eight percent growth in China. That will continue. India and all these places are the same. But that's not necessarily to say that the the companies listed on the stock markets in those countries necessarily have the best leverage into it. And, you know, I think we've always been saying to clients, you know, where you want to have exposure to that area, you know, you can look at some of the large global companies that are operating within that and you kind of have the... You have the safety of a good legal framework. You have good accounting framework, and yet you're still kind of playing the the, the leverage into, which in some cases can be thirty or forty percent of of revenue coming from these areas. So I think I would certainly at this stage, you know, the the, the jury is still out as to whether this is the bottom in, in for for the Asian markets themselves. But I think the economies continue to do very well, and certainly as a, as a first step, I'd be happy with some of those international companies that that, that play into the space. Okay, Aidan, thank you very much uh, for that. That was Aidan Donnelly, Senior Equity Strategist at Davy Private Clients. Um, thank you again for that overview of the week in international markets. And unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of those who've contributed to the show, to producer Aoife Gillivan and Paddy Donahue on sound. I'll be back next Sunday evening at 6pm. But until then, farewell and take care. The Currency with Nick Bullman. Brought to you by Fexco Commercial FX Services. Protecting your profits for 30 years.